Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Politics Now series and was recorded on February 6, 2020 at Le Quinze Space in downtown Tunis. In this episode, Charles Tripp, Professor Emeritus of Politics with reference to the Middle East and North Africa at SOAS University of London, talks about populism and the crisis of the Republic. This podcast is part of the roundtable organized by CMAT on Populism, Politics and Popularity, Reflections on the Politics of Today. I'd also like to thank uh, CMAT very much for laying this on and also to all of you for coming out on a, a cold February morning in Tunis. I mean, it may not be that cold, but uh, certainly it seemed it to me. Um, but also, I, I very much enjoyed the presentation of Professor Sarsar, and I fear that we're going to agree so much, it's going to be very tiresome for the audience, because uh, you, when you come to a panel, you want people to disagree, have violent disagreements, and set it up. But uh, I thought that there's a lot that had echoes. I'm not going to talk about any particular case, but I'm going to talk about populism in general. And I think what I want to try and do, and you'll see some of the echoes of uh, what Professor Sarsar has said already, um, is to think about what we understand by populism and what does it come from uh, and how might it be counteracted. So what are the forces that might keep it in check in particular cases but in general uh, as well. And I suppose I'm going to put forward three arguments or three uh, areas I'm going to talk about. One is thinking, uh, making an argument that populism is a style of politics, a form of politics. And some would argue, and I think I heard an echo of that in the previous presentation, a denial of politics in some senses, or denial of politics as it's been. Um, secondly, I would argue that it comes from the vulnerability of the republic, and the republic taken as a general notion of republicanism uh, rather than just or, or actions of republic. And thirdly, uh, to put forward the idea that one way of checking it is through radical republicanism. Uh, that the republic is vulnerable, and one can understand why, and in fact some of the points that Professor Sarfar has made uh, has come out of that, but it's also, uh, it's, uh, it can be, uh, if not immunized, then certainly uh, it can be part of it. The other thing to be said is that populism is never a single thing. It's often halfway achieved. There are elements of it in everybody's polities. Uh, I have this wonderful book with me, uh, which I shall present to Semat, which is uh, by an Italian uh, writer, Michela Murgia, How to Be a Fascist. Uh, and um, it's got a very good uh, questionnaire at the back. It's called The Fascistometer. And if you answer those questions, not necessarily for yourself, because I know there are no fascists in this room, uh, but you can begin to see echoes of all the polities that we live in, whether it's Tunisia, Britain, uh, France, or wherever. So it, it comes in, in one form or another, and I shall present it to Simat as a key part of their library, just to keep them on their, on their toes. First of all, then, the, the, uh, the main, uh, I suppose, statement about populism, which I think you've heard some from already, but... I would argue quite strongly that it is a form of politics, a form of a style of politics in some senses, but it also embodies very particular sets of ideas, particularly about popular sovereignty. And so in a sense, uh, I would argue it comes out of the same set of ideas as those from which democracy emerges. Uh, it, in, in a sense, therefore, allows there to be a populism of the left as well as a populism of the right. 
because it uses many of the similar uh, tropes and ideas that come out of uh, democratic politics in itself and popular sovereignty. Some have called populism uh, democracy's evil twin. Uh, and in some senses, that's not altogether wrong, that in a sense, it's often come out of and been made possible by democratic practices, uh, but it also have come out of the failings of particular democratic regimes, using aspects of it and areas of disappointment that in a sense uh, have been part of the failure of democratic systems. Um, it's also, I suppose, one of the key things about populism that one sees, it claims to respond and to communicate directly uh, with a political base, the people, uh, and therefore by value, uh, bypassing uh, elites, bypassing institutions, uh, making, again, the point that uh, Professor Sasa made about the directness of the link it claims between uh, the people. And equally important, and I think that's very visible in much of the populist rhetoric, is it uses a very emotive and moralist style uh, in the phrasing of its desires and in the um, demonization sometimes of its enemies. But there are three notable features of populism which are worth bearing in mind because they'll recur, and they don't all necessarily occur in the same place at the same time, but certainly you see elements of them, as I mentioned, in a number of different democrat uh, demo uh, democratic systems and others. First of all, there's a tendency to what I call demagogic simplification. Uh, that is a form of political rhetoric uh, that simplifies the ideological core. Uh, it uh, presents a simplified version of reality that's not meant to educate people about their rights, but is rather supposed to manipulate them by creating a politics of acclaim, not of scrutiny. So again, it's a key part of populism that it should be a politics of acclaim in many ways. And hence the preference of many populist regimes and parties for plebiscites and referenda, because that seems to present a very simplified choice, yes or no, and in a sense rules out all the uh, bits in between. And one of the things that becomes apparent, and often is apparent in the organization of these plebiscites, and we've seen it in my own country as well, is that you don't have an opposition anymore, you have enemies. So in a sense, those who oppose you are now an enemy. They're not an opposition with an equally valid set of proposals. They are seen as being an enemy. You do everything you can to delegitimize them, uh, to uh, rule them out in some form. And of course, there's the trivialization uh, of complexity. Uh, we've seen that again in my country with the denigration of expertise. Who needs experts as a government minister said recently uh, and during the heat of the campaign, and he's still a minister. So there's a sense in which uh, the idea of expertise brings in complexity. We don't need that. We need directness. The second uh, key feature is the notion of an anti-representational confrontation of below and above, above and below. Again, it's part of the simplification, uh, the dualism. Uh, it contains a very plebiscitary view, a very charismatic uh, or tends towards an attempt to charismatic leadership, a claim to power that is anti-institutional um, but with authoritarian tendencies. Uh, it's hostile to representation uh, and it's anti-pluralistic. How can you have the people if actually the people is fragmented into many different uh, things, which of course practically any population is? Voters are asked, in other words, not to reject any particular politician, but to reject uh, the basic principles of representative democracy. 
So there's a sense in which the, um, the anti-representational uh, is both spurred on by and allows this confrontation of below and above. And finally, there's, and I think that came out very clearly as well in uh, what Professor Sarsar said, an assertion of a clear and uniform will of the people, uh, a sense in which populism systematically refers to the will of the people as if there was only one people and only one will. So a, a sense in which that becomes uh, the guiding um, uh, principle, and it's often put in opposition to an elite or indeed to others as well. So uh, again, <laughs> it's been apparent in my country that when uh, the High Court, uh, uh, the Supreme Court in England judged against a measure taken by the government, the first um, uh, uh, on the stupid question of Brexit, then one of the first things that uh, the headlines of populist press said was, it had a pictures of all the judges and it said enemies of the people. So in a sense, it was already allowing the, the language of populism uh, to suggest that anybody who opposed them, even from good judicial reasons, was an enemy of the people. So this imagined community of the people needs, in some senses, some kind of other. And sometimes that's been done horizontally, uh, as one's seen in various places. Uh, it's minorities, it's immigrants, it's uh, various groups who are outside the people in some important and often violent way. And it's often vertical as well, in terms of against elites, against people who are experts, who claim to complicate things uh, in some form or another. But the point I'm making is that all these ideas that I hope will, will and certainly have come up in Tunisia and in other countries across the region and in Europe and North America as well, they don't all come at once, but you hear echoes of them in one form or another. And none of them come out of a vacuum. And the point is that they come out of what I call a crisis of governance, what I would call a crisis of the republic. And so that is, in a sense, the, the second thing that I want to talk about, which is the failure of the republic to achieve uh, its goals for all citizens equally. Um, so why might the republic be particularly vulnerable to uh, populism? Well, the crisis of the republic is the basic crisis of the tension between the aspirations of republicanism, um, liberty, equality, fraternity, and the freedom from domination, uh, and common republican practices. That is, republican regimes do not behave often uh, in the spirit of republicanism itself. So the common practices of republicanism have often become identical with those of statecraft and state practice. So what you get very often is an emphasis on duty, on order, on a uniformity of the public and indeed of the people as well, on conformity, on institutions and formal practices and procedures that may exclude many. Um, you get a blindness in many uh, even formal republican systems to social and economic inequalities, uh, to the lack of freedom that such inequality uh, creates uh, and life chances, the lesser life chances that it creates for people, and the blindness to the many forms of domination uh, that exist throughout society, and the lack of any sense of fraternity in a system where there are such wide divisions between uh, the resources and the opportunities available uh, to people in one form or other, as well as, of course, a huge uh, difference between those who rule and a distance between those who rule and those who are ruled, uh, a preoccupation with order and the ordered citizen, as well as, of course, as is often the case, selfish political entrepreneurship when elected officials 
uh, seek mainly to enhance their own power uh, and partake of its spoils. And so the populist surge and the populist wave that, that uh, Professor Sarsar was, was referring to in different places is a kind of warning signal of a dangerous gap between uh, that representation has opened up between significant parts of the population and their elected politicians. There's also another kind of violent, uh, vulnerability of the republic and the vulnerability to violence in two senses. One is, of course, insurgent violence that then produces uh, a securitized state, uh, shutting down even more aspects of the republic or republican aspirations. Or, indeed, it leads to the armed intervention, as one's seen in many countries across the world, uh, a military coup that seizes the republic and then uses populism to dress up its and disguise uh, the deep inequalities of power. So, finally and briefly, to think that if um, populism is to some extent a child, the evil twin of democracy, and to some extent comes out of the vulnerabilities of the republic, how might one think about addressing those vulnerabilities, to think about what might keep uh, certain kinds of populism in check? Well, clearly, one of the possibilities and antidotes is uh, a notion of a more radical republicanism, a determination to keep republican ideals of liberty, equality, uh, fraternity, freedom of dom from domination, not simply as formal or symbolic terms, which are often the slogans used on the flags of the republics around the world, uh, but actually as a way of transforming and empowering the public itself, and the public made up of a multiplicity of citizenship. So it's by active citizenship, participatory politics, encouragement of a plural pu uh, public, and the recognition of differences uh, in one form or another, and the rights that, that go with the uh, recognition of those differences. And I think that uh, to be able to, um, as it were, create the conditions, and this is the key thing in some ways, both normative and material, uh, for their realization, it means addressing socioeconomic inequalities between classes, between regions, over the long term, not the immediate, and uh, I think again referred to, and one's seen it quite often as a practice of uh, populism, to immediately deal with short-term problems of poverty, not to immediately deal with, uh, uh, as it were, rem remedies in the short term, which have huge populist appeal, but to think about how do you re-alter the structure of uh, economic possibility over the longer term. Uh, secondly, it means encouraging participatory politics uh, of a plural public in ways that show tangible results for the citizen. Not just uh, getting them to vote in elections periodically, but empowering them in other ways. Not simply as a slogan, but as a practice, which often has really destabilizing and disconcerting effects on those who are already privileged uh, in the given uh, unequal system that exists. And it, of course, provides uh, the need to provide meaningful arenas for citizenship in ways that make a difference to people's lives. And encouraging this to come from the subaltern, to come from below, to take the multiple and divergent voices seriously of the body of the citizens, and indeed to aspire to make redundant the notion that there is a below and an above, which, of course, is something that uh, uh, populism thrives upon in one form or another. And this often means encouraging open contention, which again is not something that people have often thought about. But one of the dangers of consensus is that it can seem deeply oppressive to those different voices. So in a sense, what one's trying to encourage is the uh, possibility of agonism, of people bringing differences to engage with each other in one form or other, and providing the spaces in which that can happen, and allow publics and counterpublics 
to engage uh, in debate with each other. So it means reviving institutions by greater access and inclusion, and it means changing narratives, uh, not just the nominant one, and allowing narratives uh, to resonate with different people to restore dignity to the very idea of difference. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.